You're listening to ReachMD XM 233, the channel for medical professionals. A serum test for HIV was designed in the early 1980s and was first available to physicians in general practice by 1985. The CDC, Center for Disease Control in Atlanta, has recently released some new guidelines for testing, and that included some radical changes from their previous recommendations. Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I am Dr. Shira Johnson, your host, and with me today is Dr. Paul Sachs. Dr. Sachs is Clinical Director of the HIV Program and the Division of Infectious Diseases at Brigham and Women's Hospital in Boston. He has taught at Harvard Medical School for more than 14 years, and he is currently an Associate Professor of Medicine there. He has been a member of the AIDS Clinical Care Editorial Board since 1996, and he's been Editor-in-Chief since 2003. Today we are discussing the major changes and recommendations by the CDC regarding HIV testing. I'm so pleased you could be with us today, Dr. Sachs. Thank you for inviting me. First, what can you tell us about the early days of HIV testing? When the test first came out, its main purpose was really to protect the blood supply. And there was a lot of disagreement about how important it was for the individual health of a person to find out their status. So people actually debated the issue about whether getting tested was was of any importance. There was no treatment for HIV at the time, but some people argued that it was just a stigmatizing test result, so why get tested? You know, over time, uh, there was a realization that finding out one's status could lead to some important preventive efforts on the part of that person, both in terms of protecting their own health and also preventing the spread of the virus to others. But that really was not the initial, initial response to the test becoming available. Because of the concern about stigma with the test early on, there, there were some very well-publicized cases where people were tested against their will, where people were identified as being HIV-infected and then discriminated against in the job or uh, because of applying for insurance. Barriers were set up to prevent HIV testing against a person's consent, and most states now have some form of consent law in place for uh, HIV testing. What have we learned about the changing face of HIV epidemiology since that time? In the 1980s, most cases of HIV occurred in men who have sex with men, uh, that's the epidemiologic term, um, or in injection drug users. However, by the late 1980s, early 1990s, increasing number of cases were being seen in heterosexual women and actually outside of risk groups. As a result, uh, clinicians' ability to test people based on their risk behavior became worse and worse, and uh, that has really led to a lot of the changes in the guidelines that we have recently. Essentially, what was previously a risk-based way of testing, where the clinician would be asked to assess the risk of the patient, is being replaced by a generalized screening approach, and this makes a lot more sense for a number of reasons. First, the asking of patients about their risk behaviors can often be off-putting, and clinicians are very loath to do it. Second, it actually ends up destigmatizing the test because it's offered more broadly. And finally, it just makes the whole process easier. Simply saying to a patient, this is part of routine, routine care is much easier than asking people detailed information about their uh, potential sexual behavior, about their sexual behaviors and potential risk factors for acquiring HIV. What type of testing practices do you see most physicians in uh, the private practice arena adhering to now? I think most private practitioners, and this is actually something I have had a chance to have discussion with them about extensively, still are using risk-based testing. Uh, testing is still quite cumbersome in most states. A written informed consent is required. Patients often feel that their doctors are accusing them of inappropriate or high-risk behaviors 
when they do offer the test. And so clinicians tend not to offer the test unless a person either asks for it or unless there's a clinical trigger to make the clinician test, a clinical trigger such as something that might be HIV-related. turns out that those clinical triggers are really very insensitive. In one recent series, only about 20% of people who were identified as being HIV positive had one of those clinical triggers. So the majority of people with HIV infection don't have any symptoms at all, and that also makes the screening process much more important. What are the newest recommendations by the CDC for HIV testing? Essentially, what they're saying is is that HIV testing should be a regular part of medical care so that it should be offered in all clinical settings, not just in a primary care's office, primary care physician's office, but also importantly in emergency departments and other places where sort of incidental care is given. When people look and see where individuals with HIV have received their care, since many of them are quite young, they otherwise have had little health care at all, and so they frequently get their care in emergency departments, urgent care centers, walk-in centers, etc. The initial approach should be one of offering the test to all sexually active adults, essentially the United States, um, at least once. Then also another important point is that they say now that written informed consent should not be required. The written informed consent still acts as a barrier, even though it was set up there initially to protect patients' rights It now seems to be a barrier uh, to getting the testing done. Um, All of this is really based on two major principles. The first one is that identifying HIV infection before it becomes serious, before it becomes AIDS, offers the patient a chance to get life-saving treatment. And the second is that it's well established that people who find out they're HIV infected do reduce their high-risk sexual behavior and therefore reduce the likelihood of spreading it to others. This is a big change from the way most of us have been practicing. You're listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMDXM233, the channel for medical professionals. I am Dr. Shira Johnson, your host, and with me today is Dr. Paul Sachs, Director of the HIV Program at Brigham and Women's Hospital in Boston, and we are discussing the changes in the guidelines for HIV testing proposed by the CDC. Dr. Sachs, what were the motivations behind the update? Hepatitis B and C, aren't they really more prevalent, yet they don't recommend widespread whole population testing for hepatitis? Well, you know, one way of looking at it is that HIV and hepatitis B and C, there really probably should be broader testing for those viruses as well. But another way of looking at it is that we have with HIV all of the key ingredients for an effective screening program. We have a a fairly substantial population of people who don't know that they're infected, Probably about a quarter to the third of the million people with HIV infection in the United States are unaware of that fact. Second, there's, there's a long preclinical period where if you identify someone at that phase, you can intervene with effective therapy and effective prevention measure, measures. And third, you have a condition that when undiagnosed until late is still potentially fatal. I mean, there are unfortunately still about 30 to 40,000 or actually 30 to 50,000 HIV-related deaths a year in the United States even though we have effective treatment. So all of those components are in place. Um, The last key piece is that the HIV test itself is extraordinarily accurate. So uh, physicians really can feel comfortable offering an HIV test even to low-risk individuals because the combined ELISA and Western blot testing that that is done in most places is so accurate. Will physicians be resistant or will the patients be reluctant? Do you think the recommendations are practical? I'm hopeful that the recommendations will be adopted. Certainly there's going to be pushback in multiple areas. No matter what, we can't get over the fact that there's still strong stigma associated with this, and that stigma extends both to individual patients and to individual practitioners. 
HIV specialists like myself and uh, public health uh, experts certainly do feel like these testing guidelines go a long way to identifying the people with HIV so that we can get them on effective therapy and reduce the spread of the virus to others. The other major barrier that I can think of, at least certainly in some states, is, are the legal ones. Because of the problems with the abuse of the HIV test when it first came out, very uh, important legal protection was put in place to prevent people from being tested against their will. So that means HIV testing sort of stands apart from quite a, quite a few other in blood tests that we do for infectious diseases or other conditions. For example, you don't need written informed consent to obtain a syphilis serology or a hepatitis serology, but you do for HIV. So what we want to do now is kind of move HIV into the regular practice rather than in a separate area, but there are definitely going to be legal hurdles. I know that in my state, Massachusetts, the uh, confidentiality laws for, for care are actually tied in with the HIV testing laws, and it's going to make a sort of revision of those laws quite diff- difficult. I do think, though, that ultimately we're heading in the right direction. Interesting experiment just happened in San Francisco where they decided, without publicizing it, that they would remove the requirement for written informed consent in some of their publicly funded clinics. And not surprisingly, as was recently published in a, in a letter in JAMA, uh, the rate of HIV testing increased substantially after removal of those requirements, and also uh, the number of people identified with HIV infection increased as well. And patient confidentiality has always had to be balanced against the need to inform contacts who could already be exposed or at risk. How has this been addressed in this electronic age compared to when HIV was first diagnosed? Well, it's a tremendous challenge, as it is with all areas of medicine, that, that patient confidentiality is critical and should be maintained with HIV infection as well as with other diseases. Now, what are some of the more novel options for HIV testing that's now available? Actually, there are two rapid HIV tests. One of them can be done on blood and also can be done on oral secretions, and it's frequently employed now in clinics that test for sexually transmitted diseases or in uh, public health clinics that don't have the ability to do blood draws. And the rapid test is very quick. It comes back in about 20 to 30 minutes, or sometimes even faster. It can be done right at the point of care. No specimen needs to be sent to a laboratory. And it can return a negative antibody test pretty definitively. And and that's great. You can give the patient the result right away if they're negative. The problem with the rapid test is that the reactive ones, the positive ones, still need to have confirmation with the combined ELISA and Western blot that is so accurate. So, so the way I like to phrase what a, a positive rapid test is, is to call them either inconclusive or preliminary. Um, these tests that are positive can sometimes end up not being confirmed with the ELISA and Western blot. One would think that in such circumstances that there would be a tremendous amount of extra patient anxiety about these rapid tests. But as long as the clinician expresses the preliminary nature of the, of the reactive rapid test, then it can usually be communicated accurately and without a lot of anxiety. Another novel test that's out there that's actually not very widely used is the home test. There's a test that one can actually purchase at a pharmacy or, or one could call a toll-free number or order it over the Internet. One obtains a kit that includes a, a stylet. You then end up taking a drop of your own blood, putting it on filter paper, and mailing it into a central laboratory at that central laboratory, they do actually a, a sort of modification of the HIV antibody test, and then you call in for your result in about a week and get it by entering a code that's on your kit. So the test is actually anonymous in that regard. 
it's very useful for people who don't want to interface with the healthcare system at all to get their HIV test. Obviously, someone who comes to you in clinical practice who says, I've done one of these home tests and it was positive, needs to have uh, another test done in your office to confirm that the result is truly positive. Um, the reason being is that, first of all, obviously, clerical errors can occur, not just with a home test, but with any test, especially when there's no identifying information on them. And second, there is the rare individual, as there is in every dreadful disease, who's actually faking it and is uh, seeking care for the secondary gain associated with this diagnosis. I want to thank Dr. Paul Sachs, who's been our guest, and we've been discussing the recent changes in recommendations for HIV testing by the Centers for Disease Control in Atlanta. I'm Dr. Shira Johnson. You've been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMDXM233, the channel for medical professionals. For comments and questions, send your email to xm at reachmd.com. Thank you for listening.